But one of the things that I, I loved as a dad is I loved coaching my kids. They're different teams. They played soccer and um, one played lacrosse. They played baseball early on. And one of the things I loved was just going to their games. And uh, one year, a long time ago, uh, I forget which, uh, whether it was Micah or Alec, they, they played uh, Little League Baseball. And uh, they're about eight, he was about eight or nine years old. And I uh, loved it, but every time we played this one team, we played the one team, they, it was the A's. Whenever we played the A's, there was trouble. Uh, we had beat them the year before and won the championship, and, and now it's the next year, and, and we're, we're getting ready to play the A's, and this is our rivalry. And see, what happened with the A's, I don't know if the coaches didn't get along or didn't like each other, but the coaches would start yelling at the umpires, and, and then the parents would start yelling at the coaches and the umpires, and then the kids would pick up on all of this aggression and all of this stuff, and then they would start to have attitudes. Well, this was a playoff game, and, and things were tense to begin with, and, and, and suddenly somebody, somebody started to get a little chippy. And the coaches started yelling at the umpires and, and, and the parents started yelling at the coaches and the umpires. And, and there, it reached a point where the conflict that was going inside of me was so much greater than the conflict that was going on in the field. It's like, somebody has to put a stop to this. Because normally, I, ooh, it's like, I just wanna stay away from this situation. But the conflict was so, uh, it was just, ah, somebody's got to do something. So I went over and I, I talked to the parents on our side. I was like, man, I said something like, you know, our kids are eight and nine years old. <laughs> you know, this isn't, this isn't life or death for us. You're like, these kids, are, they have friends on the other team. They go to school together. They play together. They're in our neighborhoods and, and we're, you know, we're yelling at them. I said, Let's keep perspective. These are eight and nine-year-olds, so let's, you know, let's cheer them on and let's let them have fun. And the parents were like, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, let's, let's tone it down a little bit. So our fans were, were agreeable enough that I thought, well, I need to go to the other side. <laughs> And so I start walking toward the other side and one of the moms talks to my wife, uh, Jennifer, and she's like, what's he doing? Is he really going to do that? And Jennifer's like, I think he is. <laughs> and the mom was like, he's gonna get killed over there. And so I went over and I said, hey, I just, I'm standing in front of them. They're, they're seated in their chairs and standing in front, I was like, hey, I just talked to my parents. I just feel like things are getting out of hand and I gave them kind of the same talk and wouldn't you know it, it was grandma. <laughs> it's like, who the blank are you? We can say whatever we want. And all of a sudden, what I thought was this kind of cool moment and, and finding reconciliation and, and, and like kind of just toning things down. All of a sudden, I felt my heart just start beating out of my chest like, oh, what do I do now? <laughs> well, before I had to respond though, there was another guy on the, on the other side who, he's like, hey, it's cool. I, I had coached soccer, we had coached soccer together. He's like, oh, it's cool. I, th I think he's right. 
I think he's right. I, I know this guy. And she's like, oh, okay. And the rest of the game, it, it went pretty, pretty well after that. But even today, my, my, my wife Jennifer says that's the night my husband almost got killed at a little league baseball game. <laughs> it was tense. And I'm not typically someone who's, who's going to do something like this, but at some point during the game, like I said, that inner turmoil became greater than the conflict that was on the field. That day I handled the conflict and, and saw the difference that, that resolving and bringing peace to a conflict can bring. Done right with the with the right words and the right tone at the right time, we have opportunity to bring peace to volatile situations. Through life, however, it's, it's probably true of all of us, there's been times when I haven't handled conflict well. I've lost my cool, I've lost my temper, I've gotten angry, I've, I've said things and done things that I later regretted. And man, the lessons that I learned from these failures, I wish I could have learned in a different way. I was once one end of a conflict that became bigger than any of us uh, expected, and that's when uh, the, the book that uh, Pastor Jeff has been referencing, that's when I was introduced to that. And as you can see, it's, it's marked up. It's got so many little uh, bookmarks and things in it. It's such a good reference. I encourage you, if you don't have, or if you're in the middle of a, a conflict or you're, you're trying to navigate through a situation, this is a great book to have because what it does, uh, Ken Sandy does just a great job of taking us back to the Bible, taking us back to what God's heart is for restoration and reconciliation. And so this morning, I'm going to be at, towards the end of my message, I'm going to be uh, a conversation, I'm going to be talking about uh, some of the things in this book that are just very practical. You see, no one really wants to talk about and think about conflict, but it's a conversation worth having. And then we're in the middle of this series, Resolved, in which we're talking about some really practical things. I mean, we all face conflict in various forms. There's no escaping it. So the question becomes, how can I handle conflict in a way that leads to the kind of resolution and reconciliation that God wants for my relationships? It's essential that we learn some of the tools and principles God has given us to, to handle it effectively. And so the first week, Pastor Jeff talked about some unhealthy responses to conflict, escaping or, or attacking in order to maintain control or, or to avoid pain. But God wants us to have this peacemaking response that's centered in the gospel and brings glory to him. When I lean into the gospel and to the good news of Jesus and ask God to take me the deeper places of understanding and intimacy with him, he makes me more forgiving, more merciful, more gracious, loving toward others. If I deal with conflict in this way, I can pursue peacemaking and I can, in the midst of conflict, bring glory to God. Well, last week uh, we talked about the need to look at ourselves and, and what's going on inside of us. And Jeff introduced some of us to the Jahari window. And if you're like, the what? 
Uh, I encourage you to go back to last week's message. Go, go to the, the campus website and, and uh, download that message. Listen to it. Also, there's E4 studies in, in graceohio.org, uh, interpersonal relationships. That is just great practical information. But before we start to look at the person that we're having conflict with, with, we need to let God expose and settle some things in our own lives. We need to resolve first the conflict that's within me. Jesus wants us to be honest with ourselves. He wants us to be honest with our sin. It's what it means to, to get the log out of your own eye, as Jesus described it. Because we're most healthy when we're real and genuine with ourselves and we're real and genuine with the people around us who know us. But the bottom line is that peacemaking, it starts with me. It starts with me embracing the gospel and allowing God to work in and through me. And so whether a conflict is happening because of something I've done to hurt someone or someone has hurt me, God tells me that the road to peace and restoration always begins with me. So this morning we're going to talk about resolving the conflict that, that I've caused others. So if you will, grab your Bible or device and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It's a chapter that some of you may be familiar with because you guys just ended a series a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, on the first few verses of this chapter called the Beatitudes. You see, in Jesus' sermon that, that goes for three chapters, five, six, and seven, he's calling his followers to be different. Different from those who follow the ways of the world. We're God's people, and as God's people, we're to act and think and talk and live differently. We live with a different perspective. We live with different priorities. We live with different attitudes. We live with different motivations. And so I'm to give myself in a way that, that helps you become all that God wants for you to be. And so my time, my energy, my efforts, my resources are given to you for your good and the glory of God. And as a follower of Jesus, I'm always looking for ways I can love God and love others more and more and more and more. So I want to jump a little bit further into Jesus' conversation and, and start looking at verse 21. See, Jesus begins with a, a prohibition against the ultimate fracture of human relationships, murder. But then he goes much deeper and, and broader in his teaching. He goes beyond preserving life itself to the essential preservation of our relationships. And so we read in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, Raka is, it just means empty headed, like, you know, a few bricks short of a full load kind of thing. 
If anyone says to his brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, to the court. But anyone who says, you fool, uh, the fool in, in, in Bible is like those who deny God and, and it causes them to do evil. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Pretty sobering words. <laughs> what, what's Jesus talking about here? He's condemning angry condensation and, and all of its family, all of its cousins, animosity and, and malice and violence and hostility and slander and rage. You see, Jesus isn't pulling any punches. He's telling us that all of these sinful, angry attitudes lead us into an eternal separation from God in hell. And Jesus' point is you don't have to murder someone to get to this point. We're guilty enough to receive punishment if we've harbored angry thoughts toward anyone. In a sense, we're all murderers. We've all murdered others with our thoughts and our minds and our hearts. That's pretty sobering to, to think about, but, but, but it's not without hope. You see, because Jesus' radical demand is meant to drive us to him. Is meant to drive us to him and to the gospel for his grace, for his mercy, and his love, and his forgiveness. We were dependent on him. And so Jesus is so concerned that his followers not harbor evil or angry thoughts toward one another. He gives us an example of what it means to, to care for and give priority to our relationships. Look how Jesus wants us to respond, starting in verse 23, he says, uh, therefore, or, or since, he's connecting it to what Jesus just said. In other words, anger is such a dangerous thing to yourself and to others around you. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. You see, the first couple verses that we looked at were, were talking about my anger, your anger. Now he says, if you come before God for worship and while you're there, you remember that your brother has something against you. He's changed the focus. All of a sudden, I've done something to anger someone else against me. My sister, my brother is angry with me. This is why I think this passage is so essential for us to, to look at this morning. Think about what Jesus just said. Are you the one who's angry? No, someone's angry at you. <laughs> and Jesus is so serious about how we interact with one another. He says, hey, if you guys come to worship me and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, press pause on worship. Press pause on worship and go make things right. You initiate the restoration, the forgiveness, and the reconciliation. Jesus said, man, don't come to me with that. Go make it right. Be reconciled. Restore that relationship as much as possible. 
You see, God puts a responsibility on us. If someone is angry at us because of sin or, or even a mistake or misunderstanding, we have a responsibility to address their hurt. I've had people angry with me because I, I didn't shake their hand on a Sunday morning. I've had people that I found out were angry with me and I'm like, I'm racking my brain, like what was the last conversation I had with them? What were, is there something I forgot? Or, and, and sometimes I can't think of anything. <laughs> and sometimes people are mad at us and we're like, I don't know why. Sometimes it has nothing to do with sin, I just messed up or forgot or I was distracted. Recently, this just happened about a month ago. <laughs> I, I saw a young couple that I had done, had, had been doing some uh, premarital counseling with. I was like, hey, how you doing? And they came up to me and we started talking. I was like, how, how was Hawaii? And they just kind of looked at each other and looked at me It's like, we didn't go to Hawaii. I said, oh, but you've talked about it. It's like, yeah, we've talked about it. We, we went to Hawking Hills. <laughs> I said, well, that's close. <laughs> so I, I was like, okay, well, well, how's your new job at Smuckers? He's like, I, I don't work at Smuckers. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm dim enough to just keep going. <laughs> I hadn't caught on yet. And so I turned to her and I'm like, ah, uh, so how's your, how's your new teaching job? You getting ready for school and this or that? And she's like, I'm not a teacher. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it dawned on me, this isn't the couple that I was thinking of. <laughs> I was totally embarrassed. It was so embarrassing, but something finally clicked. I was like, I'm sorry. I think I have you confused with someone else. And they're like, yeah, I, th I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, they could have been very hurt by this. But fortunately, uh, they were very gracious and understanding. They accepted my apology. I, I, I apologized profusely. I sent an email later on and said again, I apologize for, for mistaking you for someone else. It was horrible. But sometimes we do stupid, absent-minded things like that, and people take it very personally. And they're hurt by us. You know, for me, it was a, a case of mistaken identity, but, but they could have been really hurt. Wow, he, he doesn't even know who we are. I knew who they were. I just, you know, just had one of those brain fades. See, honestly, restoration can require a, a great deal of humility. So often people enter into conflict as sort of this game theory mentality. I've got to win this thing. I've got to prove my point. I've got to prove that I'm right and they're wrong. And the whole exchange becomes about assigning blame and fault rather than building each other up in Christ through forgiveness and extending grace to one another and showing love and understanding. See, I have to be willing to, to put myself and my pride to the side, refuse to use conflict for some personal gain, but instead live with the idea that I have this incredible opportunity to display Jesus not only to the person I've offended, but also to the people who are watching. And see, it's an incredible opportunity to make Jesus make sense to the people around me. And God is glorified.
Kent Sandy, the writer of the, the Peacemaker, says, as we reflect on and rejoice in the gospel of Christ, two things happen. Our pride and defensiveness are stripped away and we can let go of our illusion of self-righteousness, honestly examine ourselves and find freedom from guilt and sin by admitting our wrongs. At the same time, the gospel shows us how important reconciliation is to God, which inspires us to do everything we can to repair any harm we've caused to others and to be reconciled to those that we've offended. See, I think restoration process involves at least three things. Number one, I need to evaluate my past actions. I need to evaluate my past actions because the first step in gaining freedom from sin and conflict is this idea of repentance, of turning from sin and changing my ways, turning from sin and the wrong that I'm doing and turning to God and leaning into him. And sometimes this repentance comes in the way of this, like coming to, this, coming to my senses, kind of an aha moment of like, oh, wow, I didn't realize. And so it involves this waking up to the fact that our actions, our attitudes, our ideas, our values, our goals have been wrong and it leads us to take the steps needed to change those things. We recognize there's sin in our lives and we turn to God. We see this in the picture that Jesus gives us and he says, you're, you're there uh, worshiping, you give your gift at the altar and there remember that they have something against you. It's that, that aha moment of like, oh, I forgot. Oh, wow, that may have really hurt them. It's an example of a man who's driven by the love and grace that he's received through Jesus. You see, the gospel should, should drive us. Jesus should drive us. You see, the gospel, what Jesus has done by loving us, extending forgiveness to us, reconciling us to himself, gives us new life. You see, it's the, the gospel here that, that gives us new life and what Jesus has done for us, it begins to change my thoughts. It drives my thoughts. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. I've been accepted. I've been redeemed. I've been reconciled with God. I am his child, loved by him. And that changes the gospel then drives my actions. I can love others because I've been extravagantly loved by God. I can serve because Jesus served me in giving his life for me. I can forgive because I have been forgiven of those murderous thoughts. I've been forgiven of the millions of things and the millions of thoughts and attitudes that I've had against others. And so the gospel changes my thoughts and actions, which then changes the way I feel. The way I feel about myself, the way I feel about my situations, the way I feel about others. The problem is, when I let hurt and pride drive me. You see, when I, in my hurt and pride, I become angry I become bitter and then that anger and that bitterness drives me to be defensive to try to make my point to defend myself 
You see the difference? This keeps me in conflict with others. And so I come to my senses by understanding what's driving me, recognizing my sin, and turning to God. You see, I can respond in a lot of different ways. I can, I can ignore it. I can hope it goes away. I can dismiss it as, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Or I can confront it head on, confess the wrong, and begin making changes. But a lot of that depends on the next step. I need to empathize from another seat. I need to empathize from another seat. You see, a lot of times this comes out of a willingness to examine ourselves so that we can uncover what's really going on inside of us, what we talked about last week. You see, Jesus says, you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. What did I do? Perhaps one of the best ways we can come to our senses regarding someone we've hurt is to put ourselves behind their eyes, to put ourselves in their shoes. I mean, that's what it means to follow the golden rule. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 12, same sermon, by the way. So in everything, do to others what you have done, what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Sometimes, we need to have a change of perspective and ask questions like, would I want to be treated the way that I've been treating him? How would I feel if I found out people were talking about me the way I just talked about her? If our positions were reversed, how would I feel if he did what I just did? If I own this business, would I want my employees to behave the way that, that I'm behaving? You see, it's a change in perspective. When we were in high school, Jennifer and I dated for a while. We had known each other since second grade. We were good friends. We had, uh, we had good friends that we shared. And, and uh, in high school, we were like, hey, let's, let's date. I was excited. And we, we dated for several months. And then uh, one of my friends said, hey, do you know she's dating another guy too? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, ouch she dumped me <laughs> and I was like I was hurt I was angry we had had all these years of of friendship and all these things and then and I was excited about our relationship I'd invested my heart into our relationship and all of a sudden I feel all this hurt and anger oh, I went off uh, we both went off to college and uh, one, of my, one of my classes was an intro to the counseling class, and one day the professor came in and he said, I, I want to do an exercise with you guys today. He says, pull out two chairs. And so we pulled out two chairs. He goes, now, make those chairs face each other. So I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm looking at this empty chair. And he says, I want you to picture in that empty chair the person that you have a grudge against. Someone you're angry with, someone, someone who has hurt you. And so I was like, huh, Jennifer. <laughs> it's because it was an empty chair. It's like, man, I felt the freedom to be bold. Like, whoa, you know, this is how I feel. And I, I just poured out my feelings and my thoughts and how she had hurt me and how she had done all this wrong to me. And then the professor, about 10, 15 minutes later, said, now, goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit in their chair. 
And I want you to think about how they might feel. I want you to sit behind their eyes and, and see their perspective. And I started to think through like, okay, aha, wow, I was an idiot. I started to realize all the things that I had done or neglected and all of a sudden my heart changed. Like before, it was all about her and what she had done to hurt me and all of a sudden it was like, no, you caused a lot of that. And so as a result of, of that, I was like, man, I've, I've got to make this right. I miss our friendship. And so uh, that night I sat down and I, I wrote a letter apologizing for my immaturity in our relationship. I asked her if we could renew our friendship. It was fascinating. I was telling Jennifer I was talking about this today and, and so we started looking around. I found the letter. <laughs> Postmarked January 21st, 1987. Some of you weren't even born yet. <laughs> I read through this letter again and it's like, wow. I just poured out my heart. It's like, man, these are the things that I, these are the things that I did to hurt you. These are the things, man, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? We found her letter. It was postmarked like five days later. She wrote right back and she's like, you know, she goes, I, I've been thinking about it too and these are the things that, man, I didn't bring to our relationship and I'm sorry I hurt you and can we be friends again? And, and so we started talking and we started celebrating our, rela our relationship, our friendship. And so as proof that seeking to resolve conflict is worth the effort, we, we just celebrated 28 years of marriage. It's worth it. It's worth the work. It's worth the setting aside of pride. You see, I wasn't, it wasn't until I started to ask hard questions of myself and put myself in her shoes and see behind her eyes that I began to see the log in my own eye. Ooh, wow. My, my quirkiness, my mistakes, my immaturity, my selfishness. When we, when we come to our senses and gain some perspective, we're ready to take another step. Listen to the last part of what Jesus says here. Settle matters quickly for, <clears throat> with your adversary who is taking you to the court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. penny. Jesus isn't letting up on the pressure here. He's saying, go quickly to those that we've offended. Make things right. He's saying, don't let this get to this massive point. Do work early. And sometimes doing work early means doing it quickly, and it means forgiving and not rehashing the whole thing. And if you've been deeply wounded, forgiveness is something that maybe need to, to lay down a, a billion times. I know in my own life that people have hurt me and, and like I've forgiven them 30 times and then the right circumstance and the right time and, and I interact with them and I'm like, oops, I haven't fully forgiven them. And God's invitation is to keep laying it down. 
to keep laying it down and trusting him. You have to respond immediately. But you may have to resolve it patiently. In this passage, Jesus doesn't mention the responsibility of the other person to restore the relationship. He puts it squarely on you and me. Why? Because we have a responsibility to live in response to the gospel. He's not asking us to do anything. He's he's not already modeled for us. And it's a hard truth, but one recognizing the pursuit of reconciliation is always my responsibility. Jesus is saying, don't just press pause on worship. Be diligent. Own all of the hurt or the conflict as you can, as much as you can, maybe more as quickly as you can. Don't let it grow. Don't let it fester. Own your part. And this leads to the third step to restoration. When I've hurt someone, I need to humbly extend reconciliation. Jesus says, first go and be reconciled to them. You see, as God begins to reveal how you've sinned against or wronged someone, he also offers a way to find freedom from that wrong by confessing it. And so if you want to breathe grace into a relationship and make peace, Sandy suggests the seven A's of confession. I encourage you to write these down if you have a pen and paper. Just very practical things that we'll run through very quickly here. How do I I extend an apology with humility that's meaningful and effective? Number one, address everyone involved. Your confession should reach as far as your offense. In other words, confess your sins to every person who's been directly affected. Start with God and work your way out. David prayed, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me from what I have sinned against you. Our first sin is against God. But then we were to to go face to face with the people that we've offended, if at all possible. It was interesting, in reading the letter, it said that, hey, Jennifer, I'd stop by your house. (laughs) See, I was going to talk to her face to face, and she wasn't there, and whew, I was relieved. (laughs) But I wrote this letter, and and things, things progressed. You see, in our day and age, it's, it's easy to tweet or text or email, but there's value in talking to someone face-to-face, if at all possible. The second thing is avoid if, but, and maybe. <laughs> the best way to ruin any kind of restoration or peace is to use words that shift the blame or minimize the, the offense. Look at some of these apologies up here. Perhaps I was wrong. Maybe I should have tried harder. Possibly I should have waited to hear your side of the story. I guess I was wrong when I said those things about you. I shouldn't have lost my temper, but I was tired. You see, these these words here, perhaps, maybe, possibly, I guess, but all diminish the power of these words. We read these statements without the italicized words and they have power. I was wrong. I should have tried harder. I should have waited to hear your side of the story. I was wrong when I said those things about you. I shouldn't have lost my temper. 
They have so much more power when, when we forget these words, perhaps, maybe, if, but, maybe. You see, each of these statements have powerful and have value. And so watch what, what words you use. Be careful that you watch your tone and your nonverbals. Uh, I've read somewhere communication is 7% verbal, 93% nonverbal. And so if I say I'm sorry with my arms crossed and a, and a scowl on my face, I'm probably not communicating sorrow or contrition. Our tone matters. I mean, think about all the ways you can say dude. Dude! Dude? Dude. Each one has a different meaning, right? Tone matters. You see, what, what you mean to say and what you're actually saying can be completely different. So watch your words, your tone, your nonverbals. But understand also that a person's perception is their reality. No matter how you say it, they're filtering it through all of their own preconceptions, all from their perspective out of their personal pain. And they'll hear what they want to hear, and so will we. So will I. And so we need to be aware of that. And so when we talk to someone, seek to understand before being understood. Listen to what they're saying and, and say things like, man, help me understand that. Clarify what they're saying. Repeat what you've heard them say. Then respond. Identify the issue and then speak for yourself using I statements. Here's what I think, Here, here's what I'm feeling. This is how I understand that. You see, our tendency is to, to attack, to defend, and, and want to seek the win, but it only escalates the conflict. You see, you can make a point or you can choose to make a difference. I have to pursue the relationship over winning the conflict. Number three, admit specifically. You see, the more, the more detailed and specific I can be when making an apology or confession, the more likely it's going to lead to a positive outcome. You see, when we're specific and conveys that, man, I'm honestly wrestling with this issue and I'm facing up to what I've done. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. Acknowledge and express sorrow for what you said or did to hurt them. Because you want to show that you understand how your actions affected them, how they felt as a result of those words. Something like, you, you must have been embarrassed when I said those things in front of everyone. So sorry I did that. Five, accept the consequences. See, when you're willing to accept the consequences of something you've done, it makes confession even more credible. If I've damaged something, I, I need to try and repair or replace it to make restitution. If I've spread lies about someone or something, I need to talk to those that I've lied to and admit, man, uh, what I said to you wasn't true. If I've repeatedly violated my employer's trust, I need to accept the fact I could be fired. You see, the harder you work to make restitution and repair any damage you've caused, the easier it will be to restore the relationship. Number six, alter your behavior. It's part of repentance, that turning. 
create a plan, express how you desire to change. Just describe some of the attitude and character and, and behavior changes you, that you want to make. And mention that, you know, make a plan to meet with a friend or, or a counselor or a pastor to give you advice to, to hold you accountable. And then communicate what changes you're making or, or help you're getting to ensure them that this isn't gonna, the same thing doesn't keep happening. Of course, the last one is ask forgiveness, allow time. You see, if you follow these steps, many people will be readily ready to, to say, man, I, I forgive you. But it may take several efforts to make an adequate apology. You may not have all the information the first time. You may apologize and they may be like, I get that, but you realize this is what you also did or this is what you also said? And so if, if this is the case, discover what's blocking forgiveness and take care of it. See, minor offenses can be dealt with quickly and simply. However, more serious offense, the more serious the offense, the wiser it will be to go through all of these steps. And when you're all done, if they don't offer forgiveness, ask for it. Will you, will you please forgive me? You see, it's a way of saying, man, I've done everything I I feel like I can by way of confessing, of apologizing, of trying to make it right and and doing these things and changing my own heart. I'm waiting for your response. And I'll make sure you don't pressure them into a response, but because sometimes it takes time. You may have overlooked something that they're still hurting over. There may be wounds that, that run deep deeper than you imagined. You see, some people can forgive quickly, others take longer. Forgiveness is a gift. We're hoping they'll give us that gift. Whatever you do when you go to confess a wrong, remember remember why you're there. (laughs) This is probably foundational to the whole thing. Remember why you're there. You're there to serve them. You're there to serve the other person and not simply gain comfort for yourself. See, regardless of their response, fulfill your commitment to repair the damage you've caused. Make the personal changes needed in your own life. Jesus is asking us to live differently to live in context of our relationships differently. He's asking us to live by his command to to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor, love others as yourself. Love God, love others. And it's a love that was demonstrated by Jesus and that even while we were still sinners, even while we were in rebellion against him, even when we were in conflict with him, he gave his life for us. You see, if I learn to love like this, driven by the gospel, driven by Jesus, I will seek peace. I'll be willing to evaluate my past actions. I'll learn to empathize from another seat and humbly extend reconciliation with sensitivity and love and kindness and grace. And see, I wonder, I just wonder how much healthier we would be as individuals and as churches if we took the time and made the effort to seek peace when we've created conflict with others. 
Well, next week, uh, Jeff's going to be back and he'll be talking about the flip side of this, of when people have, have deeply hurt us. Well, let's pray.